Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hey, Dr. E. Hi, Dr. E. My name is Molly from Pittsburgh. This is Mallory calling from New York. I'm Jack from Houston. If there's salvation for any of the other people groups that were alive during that time. Regarding the Israel trip, I feel like I'm still so ignorant about the conflict and the situation over there. What is your view on Calvinism? What was Christ's purpose in going and proclaiming to the saints in prison? Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm Hannah Seymour sitting here with Dr. Michael Easley, and we're in the studio recording another Ask Dr. E episode. And, you know, we haven't told folks that we've got a cool new studio, have we? I don't know if we have. Tell them yeah, about we've it. We've got a cool new studio. Well, how do we tell them about it? <laughs> we have a friend who gave us access to this incredible studio, and we're just humbled beyond description. But it's nice. It's so nice. And we have another friend who's helping us outfit it all and telling us all the pieces of equipment and things we need to buy to have this really up and running. So anyway, we're grateful. Praise God. I mean, I mean this is grateful, this is not fun. something we take for granted. So you're hearing us from the new studio, <laughs> studio, studio. Sorry. Well, with that, let's jump into our very first question. Hey, Dr. E. This is Mallory calling from New York. And I've been reading a lot about the Israelites lately, and I was curious if there's salvation for any of the other people groups that were alive during that time, or if all of the other people that were alive during the Israelites' time um, weren't saved because they weren't part of that group. Hope to share this on the air. Well, we're glad for the question, and we're thrilled to put it on the air. It's a great, great question. Let's start, first of all, with the Abrahamic covenant, uh, perhaps overlooked by too many of us. When God calls Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. By the way, he didn't know where he was going yet. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There was no universal uh, family known as just the Jew by this time. So this is a broad, uh, sweeping Abrahamic covenant, all the ethnos. By the time we get to the New Testament, of course, we read, make disciples of all nations, the word ethnos. But let's, let's take a look at a couple of individuals that may help. So first of all, it's a great question and one that uh, I commend you for thinking uh, that deeply about the scripture and about the role of the Jew and the Gentile at that time. In Joshua chapter 2, we meet a friend we well know. Uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men, spies, and he says, go into the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to a house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And by the way, sidebar, Hannah, I just read an abstract the other day. There's a guy who thinks the word harlot should be innkeeper. What? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, just one of those little things your father gets lost in the weeds on. But uh, Rahab the Harlot, interesting uh, name to be known for out through all history. Uh, let's go back to the text. So Rahab is certainly uh, in Jericho. Uh, we don't have any indication that she is a believer in Yahweh Elohim. In fact, it seems as though this was a result of the spies have gone to the land, which is obviously parallel, Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who came out in Numbers 13. So now they're being sent into the land. And this is the so-called scarlet thread of the story. She's promised that because she gave sanctuary to the two Jewish spies and Jericho is going to fall, she's promised that her and her family will be saved. So that's an inkling of the uh, offer of Yahweh Elohim, which again, let me back up a, a skosh and say, all come to faith the same way. All come to Christ in our vernacular the same way. It's by faith in what God has done in the personal work of Jesus. Old Testament saints believed, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So faith is still the means by which we're saved, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile. So Rahab then, of course, becomes part of the so-called uh, Hebrews Hall of Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read in verse 31, by faith. Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. So we've got her as an example. And obviously we could look at uh, Ruth, who is known as Ruth, what? The Moabitess. And so the backstory there is a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi have left uh, Bethlehem because of a, a famine. They've gone to Moab. And there, his sons marry Moabite women. Now, we have no idea if these Moabite women became Jews before they were married. They're living in Moab, of course. It'd be uh, complicated for them to become Jews living in uh, Moab. Let's just say for conversation's sake, they quote, converted to Judaism, but we have no, we have no recognition of that. And she's forever known as Ruth the Moabitess. And so Ruth will uh, cling to Orpha. She will uh, return with her uh, to Bethlehem, having never lived on that side of the Jordan River. And she'll uh, become part of the family of God. Certainly uh, by the end of the book of Ruth, we know that she's in the lineage of David and, of course, being in the lineage of Christ. So we've got these two individuals, Ruth and Rahab, who are certainly outside the pale of Judaism. And they have embraced Yahweh Elohim. We would say in our vernacular, they believe Christ, they've trusted in Christ, and they're part of the family of God. Now, let's go to the, what we don't know. The Bible is silent about some of these nations and some of these people groups. Solomon is the one who was the most egregious. He was warned not to multiply wives. The kings weren't to take wives from outside the nation of Israel because their gods would infiltrate, idolatry would corrupt uh, Israel. And that was the perennial weed all the way through the book of Judges. All these external influences were from Chemosh, the Moabite gods, the Canaanite gods, Baal, the Ashtaroth. They infiltrated Judaism. So the story we're reading about the Jewish people is not so much about their evangelistic outreach to people groups around them. But the Abrahamic covenant was certainly uh, global, where we like to use today. It was a word, it was a blessing to all the world because Messiah would come through this lineage from the Abrahamic covenant all the way 
to the birth of Christ. So it's a sum up. It's a great question, but I think the offer of salvation, as we'd say in New Testament terms, was available to any and all who knew the Jew. The challenge was in antiquity in the ancient Near East, they were typically enemies of Judaism. They hated the Jew. They hated the Jew's God, Yahweh Elohim, which is why there's so much bloodshed and war and combating through all of Israel's history except in the times where we do have uh, some peace during the judge's reign and the king's reign. But in the main, they were considered enemies to be exterminated and, um, and fought that fight all the way until 70 AD when they lose the entire city. So anyway, uh, great question. I do think we have uh, people, Rahab and Ruth being two, others that are not known, and we hope many who knew the Jew in antiquity uh, came to trust in their God and became what we would call Christians by today's terms. So let me ask you a follow-up question, because as I'm thinking about Mallory's question and and your response, I know that the Jews were God's chosen people, special, elect, set apart, holy, you know, all the things. But do you think that means that every Jew pre-Jesus was saved, saved by faith? Yeah, of course not. And we we know the means of salvation is the same, believing Uh. in God, believing in Yahweh Elohim, trusting in him. Uh, But we've got examples of, you know, Abigail's husband. I mean, by, by the time of Judges, we've got some outright just, you know, horrific uh, Jewish people mm-hmm. that we would uh, sure. let's call them Israelites, not Jewish Israelites. And uh, we, you know, the, the sons that offered strange fire before the Lord, Eli's sons, uh, the priest's sons, Phineas, who has to kill some immoral people. Um, the short answer is no, not all Jews believed in Yahweh Elohim. Not all Jews were righteous and pious. Um, the book of Ruth is a great illustration of this because the judges is arguably the darkest chapter, 350 to 400 plus years of time, the darkest chapter in Israel's history, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, which really is a continuous book, says, now it came about in the days when literally the judges were judging. There was a famine in the land. And so you've got this great story mm-hmm. of a faithful Jew named Boaz. Yep. A brokenhearted uh, a woman uh, named Naomi, who, by the way, if you haven't heard, listened to the interview with Jean Hendricks, you must listen to the interview with Jean Hendricks on her view of Naomi. Mm-hmm. And then this Ruth, who is obviously outside the pale of Judaism, yep. who comes to faith, who follows Naomi, who is then married to Boaz and grafted into Judaism and becomes in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So the, the gospel uh, certainly is... is to the world from the Abrahamic covenant, uh, Jesus and the Great Commission make disciples of all ethnos, but the stories we're reading are primarily about the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. So it's not primarily about the Assyrians who believed in Yahweh right. <laughs> or the Canaanites right. who converted. That's not the right. story. The story is God's chosen people in the in the chronicles, if you will, of Israel's history. Yeah, one people group to spread his name, right. just like he used 12 disciples. To, I mean, yeah, I just think it's interesting because I don't know if I'd ever thought... I think we've oversimplified, yeah, God's chosen nation. If you were a Jew, that means you were born, you know, you've got the right straw and you're saved. And then if you're not a Jew, that means that you were an enemy of God. And I guess it really is not that simple. And during Christ's time, we think the scribes and the Pharisees, the harshest words Jesus utters are toward the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. The Jewish Jew that they yep. could be. Yep. So so these guys, I mean, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle is a, is a great illustration. Here's a guy that's 
uh, typifies a Jewish academic lawyer. And when we say lawyer, it's not how we think of law today, but a, a, an expert of the law of God, mm-hmm. an expert of Torah, uh, and he is persecuting Christians for the name of Judaism, and he comes to Christ in a profound way. So uh, there were certainly many, many pious Jews who did not believe in Jesus, and I don't think that's a stretch to say there were many Jews in the Old Testament that did not embrace Yahweh Elohim by faith the way mm-hmm. Abraham did. Um, and of course, we have some some yeah. characters, you know, uh, Joshua who stands out, Josiah the king who stands out, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, these these great men of faith, patriarchs sure. of faith, Abigail, Deborah, who were certainly believers of Yahweh Elohim. Yeah. But um, great question. Great question. Okay, so our next question came from actually a Facebook post from Jennifer, and this is what she said. Would love you to one day help us understand what happens to those who denounce their faith and walk away like Joshua Harris and now, sadly, Marty Sampson. So, Dad, we see all the time these incredible Christian evangelical leaders, pastors, authors, whatever, that all of a sudden say... Skrr, the record screeches and <laughs> never mind. I'm taking it all back. I've I'm no longer a follower of Christ and I think it's all a sham. What what happened? <laughs> well, number one, it's a heartbreak. Number one, it's just it's um sad at a hundred levels. Let's let's look essentially, let's do the A and B here. You've got two choices. Either they never trusted Christ or they trusted Christ and they're off in deep sin. Yeah. Now, I've got friends uh, uh, who would take me to task on the latter statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I contend that a person can be a believer in Christ and live in sin. Mm-hmm. And let's look at a few passages to uh, sort of explain this. Let's talk about this individual named Demas who shows up a few times in the New Testament and very, very quick in passing. In the letter to Philemon, the last two verses reference, uh, Paul says, let me read verse 22 and following, at the same time, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, fellow workers becomes the signature of Paul's soon Aragon, those who worked with him in the flesh. Demas, who's this Demas guy? We also find him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Again, this is a list of fellow workers, those who worked alongside Paul. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greeting and also Demas. So this is a, a disciple of Paul's who's with him in some of these uh, Pauline letters and some experiences. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we read this tragic verse. Um, Paul writing the younger Timothy at late in Paul's life. Uh, let me read verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know a lot about it, but he is an interesting character that I think invites, uh, not over-interpretation, but he was certainly with the disciples. He's with Paul. He's with Luke. Luke, of course, is with Paul for most of his travels. When when Paul is incarcerated in house arrest, Luke is able to visit him as his physician, as his friend, mm-hmm. and Demas would be part of this entourage. Um, this little chilling phrase, he deserted me. 
He loved this present world. So there was something in the world that pulled him away from being a follower of Jesus. So let's go back to the A or B. Uh, Maybe a person, uh, certainly a person can have walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, said the right things, but never truly came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sure. And in that case, we, we roll up our prayer sleeves and say, we pray for these people. Um, the damage they do to the gospel is is very hard. Yeah. Um, and maybe they are men and women of faith who have chosen a life of sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And it is very easy in Western Christianity to live a life of sin and call yourself a Christian. Mm-hmm. There's very little accountability. There's very little uh, call to truth. There's so much uh, uh, acceptance and tolerance and diversity, and all this language becomes kind of amalgamated. Well, you you know, I mean, you got to let them live. With, I mean, who who cares if they live in sin? Well, God cares. The sin uh, sin is a, a critical issue. It's life and death. So I, I do think a believer can choose to live in sin. Uh, Paul prays for the destruction of a man who's committing an unspeakable immorality in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He asks that God will kill him to save his soul, but to de- destroy his flesh because he's living in sin. Wow. A prayer I would not pray uh, readily, um, but Paul felt it was appropriate at that time. So either they are a believer and they're living in sin, or they never came to Christ. I don't think there's another way to explain it. To say that someone's a believer and living in sin, for someone to specifically denounce Christ and Christianity and say, I do not believe this anymore. I mean, wouldn't you say that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I would say that they probably never came to Christ, but I can't say that categorically. We don't know. Um, They could be so confused by their sin and blinded, the, the scripture talks about being calloused in our mm-hmm. sin, that, uh, you know, they're saying things that are, you know, quote, true for the moment, close right. quote. Um, and indeed, they could, this is why it's so complicated when it comes to calling, you know, who's a believer and who isn't a believer, and what church you go to, what denomination you align with. Um it's a very tenuous job, and I think we can be very uh, pharisaical yeah. in calling people Christians. Now, uh, this digresses way down the line, but the, you know, sometimes we'll, you'll know them by their fruit. I think that's a very misconstrued passage. That that fruit is talking about false teachers. Mm-hmm. It's also talking about the, the believer's good works, mm-hmm. that we're, we were created in him uh, for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Uh, not works for salvation, but that we, we should walk in these good things God has given us to do. And so, I mean, it's a dicey thing. I, I do think, Hannah, our Western culture is so accommodating mm. and so conflict-averse that we just don't want to say, well, you know, they're not a Christian or they're living in sin or any combination thereof. But Scripture seems to uh, be clear enough with Demas, with Paul praying for a person's destruction of their flesh so they don't continue to live in sin. Why, why would he pray for a non-believer mm-hmm. to be killed? Uh, he'd pray right. for their salvation. Right. Um, so, so to me, I mean, it's a loaded question. It's heartbreaking. And it's not only heartbreaking for the individual, uh, the two that the, the, the Jennifer names, uh, but it's, to me, more heartbreaking for the people they influenced. Yeah. Because when those people choose to say those things, to go online, to renounce, to denounce, then they're, quote, former followers. They're giving permission for others to do the same. Absolutely. 
and, yeah. and it creates heartbreak in the in the household of God. So, um, not to sound trite or cliche or you know read a book or you know pray a prayer, but we need to pray for not only these men and women, but we need to pray for the local church that she is bold and and truthful and careful to teach people what it means to walk in a faithful life. Yeah. You know, when you become a Christian, it's not that you don't get to do certain things you used to do; it's that you get to live a life you could never have lived. Mm. And so many of these men and women who are pulled, uh, whether a lot of it has to do with sexuality, homosexuality, LGBTQ stuff. A lot of it has to do with social gospel. A lot of it has to do with important issues for the culture. But when it comes to your eternal soul, Mm -hmm. are you willing to say, I want to live a certain way because this is how I was made, what I want to do, uh, the way of Demas, the way of the world over against a life that is eternal, that Christ is offering you? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when people say things to me, uh, and you, you as well in small groups, I can never believe in a God who? Yep. Fill in a blank. Yep. And uh, some of these folks are saying things like that. What you've just said is I've made God in my own image. Right. I'm not willing to align myself to the God of the scriptures. I'm not willing to align myself to Jesus Christ. I could never love or worship a God who you just made God in your own image. That's a dangerous thing to say. And so it's heartbreaking. And we want to do something about it, but we can't. We we love, we want to be kind, but we also want to be truth tellers. And for the aforementioned people to say some things they've said is is wrong, it's sin, it's heresy. I don't know if they're saved or not. I'm not going to stand in the dock and say they're saved because of their former good works, uh, their former thing. It yeah. just have been altruistic good people right? and believe something. But it's a quandary we will live with until the end of time. Either they are saved and are living in sin or they never embraced the gospel of Christ. Yeah, that's hard. And I think, I mean, I want to get so caught up and were they saved, were they not saved, and how do you figure that out? And then I, I kind of sense that, you know what, Hannah, it's more important that you are thinking about your own soul and your own sin and and, and, using, about. and using opportunity, the people around us, your small groups, your friends to talk about these things, not to gossip about these people that are, you know, saying crazy things and posting stuff. I, mean, I have pastor friends that have gone nuts, <laughs> I mean, they've gone nuts. And it's so easy to, uh, you know, pile on. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you go, Lord, you love them as much as you love me. Yep. Um, even a heretic, he loves them. Yep. Now, there's consequences to their choices, right. and if they don't repent, if they don't come to a saving knowledge, if they're believers living in sin, then they're to repent. Yeah. If they never come to Christ, then the first step is they need to embrace the person work of Jesus. I mean, the, the, the crazy part of the gospel to me is, unlike any world religion, uh, you're doing you know, the five pillars of Islam, whatever it is, uh, the Armenian viewpoint of what you have to do to be saved and ensure your salvation, those who don't hold to eternal security. All those arguments to me are fascinating when the gospel is free and paid for by the most expensive gift ever given to man, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the most lavish sacrifice ever made on any altar, the crucifix of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. And yet, we shake our fist, we divine our own systems, we develop our own systems, and if you do this, maybe you'll go to heaven, live like me, and maybe you have a chance. Let me do whatever I want to do. Don't judge me. I mean, talk about unbridled sin. Mm. And here the offer stands on the cross, 
forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Yep. And it's so simple. It's so clear. And yet our arrogance keeps us from the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. And um, so, you know, back, back to the local church, back to the small group. Can you have the conversation? Can you open that door and say, I don't want to gossip about these people or pile on these pastor friends of mine that have gone nuts. But goodness gracious, how do we keep from that? Yeah. And how are we clear on why we believe what we believe? That's good. Okay, let's move to a question that we got from Molly. Hi, Dr. Easley and Hannah. Um, my name is Molly from Pittsburgh. I actually attended your church, Emmanuel, up in Northern Virginia. I had a question regarding the Israel trips and just kind of one of my hesitations with that is that I feel like I'm still so ignorant about the conflict and the situation over there. And I just wanted to know if you could maybe summarize everything at, I don't know, like a middle school level, you know, simplify it and discuss that or what books you have read or what books you would recommend before someone does that trip. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, I love this question from Molly, and it reminds me, one of the Israel trips I took with you, we had a friend on that trip, and I'm not going to name her because she's, like, famous, and so I'm not going to out her on this show, <laughs> but she would ask these questions, like, the middle school, like, the seventh grader question, and we'd all be like, thank you, like, someone had the guts to just admit, I have no idea what you just said, can you break it down for me a little bit more? So, break it down for all of us, because Molly is not alone and not understanding the conflict over there. Okay, when she just summarize everything i'm like Oy vey. <laughs> i'm not that guy this is what you do uh, right right well yeah Let, let's let's take this from a couple of levels first of all let me just talk about travel and conflicts because that's a, when i first heard the question molly that's where my, my mind ran until i understood your your question but this is also something i often uh, get is, is it safe over there the palestinian israeli conflicts the west bank issues yeah. and uh that is probably the number one question I get about travels to Israel. I, I'm getting close to a 20th trip, I guess, leading tours over there now. I've never once felt unsafe. I have been in the northern uh, Golan Heights area, and we've heard uh-huh. uh, missiles and fighting. I think it's quite exciting. <laughs> Those around me think I'm nuts. But you go back to your hotel room and listen to Sky News, uh, and they yeah, talk about five-star hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they talk about there was fighting between Lebanon and Syria today. And I, you remember those? You heard that was fighting, yeah. and they're not fighting Israel at the time. Now, so, but seriously, there's always conflict over there uh, from from a you know safety issue. As a traveler, uh, the tourist in Israel is the crown jewel economically, one of the crown jewels economically. Mm-hmm. So nobody wants the tourist to be harmed or hurt. Um, when you go to Washington D.C. Where, or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or downtown Chicago or parts of Middle Tennessee, they're dangerous. Every city in the in the United States has got some areas you avoid. Well, think of parts of the neighborhood of Israel you're just going to avoid. So from the, the the political conflicts over there between the Palestinians, Hamas. Israel, IDF, um, there may be a uh, little fracases and scraps going on. Uh, I mean, who, there's no, there's no way to say ensure perfectly that there won't be another war over there. I mean, goodness gracious, that land has been in conflict from day one. So, um, 
I just tell our travelers, and I often tell parents this whose kids want to go, I go, do you think, uh, and I, I hold my hands out in front of me like a scale, and I go, do you think you are safer uh, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, or safer in Israel if you're in God's hand? And not to be you know, pejorative, but there's a certain sense wherever we travel, there is a a, a possibility you could get sick, you could get hurt. I mean, goodness, I heard today the number of people that have been killed in Mexico this year alone. Mm-hmm. Like, goodness gracious, my kids love to go to Mexico for vacation. So what do you got to do? Um, so th- there is an element of danger. I, it, it's like Bilbo when he tells Frodo, it's a dangerous business when you go out the door. <laughs> you know. So th- there's that. All right, let's talk about the conflicts there from a religious political standpoint. Now, now let me say, preface this, look, I, I'm going to give you a thimble of information, and there are experts in this field, yeah. and there are more opinions about the Israeli conflict than uh, than you can define. Uh, there's a joke in Israel, if you ask five rabbis a question, you'll get eight answers. <laughs> and when it comes to the Palestinian Jewish conflict, that is that is true. So in on June fifth, nineteen sixty seven, Israel began the six day war. In it lasted six days. And during that time, you've got all these uh, Middle Eastern forces: Jordan, Syria, Egypt are all fighting Israel. It's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Talk about the little guy up against three uh, Goliaths, and uh, amazingly, they win. If you look at the landmass prior to the 67 war, Israel was, uh, let's say, a good 30% smaller. Uh, after the Six-Day War, the River Jordan, and if you're looking at a map, uh, the uh, Mediterranean Sea would be on your left, and then that's the shore of Israel, and then the Jordan River goes north to south. That divides between Israel and the land of Jordan. Uh, down south and to the west would be Egypt. Okay, so uh, better to look at a map than listen to me try to explain it. The Jordan River then at the top of the land as you go north, that area is expanded into what today is known as the Golan Heights. And on a trip, you'll go up there and you'll look over. There's a place called Harbental. There's a number of places you can overlook into Syria and into uh, Lebanon. And on a clear day, you can see a village called Damascus in Syria that is essentially a ghost town that the uh, that they've left to show, basically, this is what the Jews did to us when they destroyed Damascus. The top of that Golan Heights is a minefield, literally, of mm-hmm. electronics and mines to keep uh, the, the, this border between Israel, Syria, and Lebanon uh, safe from uh, one another, you might argue. Now, so so you have the Palestinian people group. Now, hotly debated whether they ever really were a people group, whether they're sort of an amalgamation of people. Um, if you think of, if you're in Hawaii, you have the Polynesian people group, many different groups, poly. And there, there was no one actually born in Hawaii who was a Hawaiian, in other words. And so when I talk about the Middle East, I often use that as an illustration, not only for the Palestinians, but the Jews as well. Because to, to say that all the Jews who live there are related to Abraham is an overstatement. So you've got these two people groups primarily identified as Palestinian and the Jews. Palestine, uh, in in most of 
in most ways is a very complicated subject because of the infiltration of Hamas and a lot of terrorist activity. Uh, what you don't hear in the news is that some 800 bombs a day are lobbed from northern Palestine into Israel. Now, these are smaller irritation bombs. When you go over there, uh, your guides may or may not take you into some of these neighborhoods, but they have uh, sirens that go off. Um, These aren't like big ballistic missiles. They're going to take out a whole town. They're irritations. And this goes on all the time. It's never discussed in the media. What's discussed is when Israel goes after the Palestinians, or more specifically Hamas. Hamas is flat out a group of thugs, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They are a group of thugs. So that's one area of the geopolitical tension. Now, of course, you have believers in Christ. You have Messianic believers. You've got Palestinian Christians. You've got uh, different groups around there that would have some Middle Eastern uh, ethnicity who are followers of Jesus. But their geopolitics is very different than yours and mine. Uh, I have a friend uh, named Ahmad Shahadi who has a seminary in Jordan. And he was telling me about all the different uh, uh, Middle Easterners who come there. And they all think it's their land. (laughs) And you can't go over there and simply teach it's the Jews' land because the Jews today were not the Jews of antiquity. Right. So, so I have a great love for Israel. I love the Jew, but the Jew is not innocent in every regard. Uh, just, just like Americans aren't innocent in every regard. Uh, it is their land. And from a geopolitical standpoint, I would stand with Israel as it is their property. The other thing to do, if you're looking at a map, is look at how big Israel is compared to all the surrounding uh, Middle Eastern groups. Israel is the size of the state of Connecticut. Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon are huge Middle Eastern people groups. So why in the world are we fighting over this little sliver of a piece of land that's blocked in by the Jordan River on the right, as you're looking at the map, Mediterranean Sea as you go toward the west, and there's no place for them to go. So just from a common sense viewpoint, I look at this land and go, cannot Israel have its own little tiny state the size of Connecticut while these other massive Middle Eastern groups could accommodate these other people? And that's where uh, I get a little bit you know, definitive saying uh, it, it's a lot more complicated and there's no simple answer. This has been going on since the beginning of the, the establishment of Israel And in my opinion, it will go on until the end of time. Mm -hmm. So the conflict is real. When you go over there, your guide will give you far better information than I can. Uh, These men and women who are guides are phenomenal. They all have their own leanings. Some of my close friends over there, and I disagree on the geopolitics of their land. That said, it's their home. They grew up there. They were born there or they repatriated there. They lived there. The Jews care for their land. The Jews are the um, uh, America's essentially only Middle Eastern ally, uh, the only UN ally, we would argue, for those uh, who keep it from that perspective. So so to me, at the end of the day, uh, whose land is it? As Dr. Charlie Dyer says, it's God's land. Hmm. Uh, who occupies it? Uh, Israelis. 
and Palestinians are going to fight until the end of time. And as another friend of mine says, there will never be peace in Israel until they run out of rocks, which means it ain't ever going to happen because there's enough rocks to last for an eon. Golda Meir was the one who said, the Palestinians uh, will have to love their children more than they hate Israel before there can be peace. And that's true perhaps for any people group. Is the war and the battle worth sacrificing your children's future on one enemy? And, um, you know, when you go there, you may develop a different opinion. And I've probably stirred up more controversy than I've solved. But at the end of the day, I think that the the Jews over there that I've known on and off now since the late uh, mid-90s are dear friends of mine. I love them dearly. And uh, Bethlehem and Jericho have become complicated areas. Uh, as the West Bank, of course, is a complicated area. But at the end of the day, um, I think they're all people that Christ died for, and they need the gospel, and we need to pray for the peace of Israel. Mm-hmm. And to bring a little bit of clarity to something you said, when you sign up, not you, Michael, when you as the listener sign up to go to Israel with Michael, Michael is your guide in the sense that he's the Bible teacher, but then paired with Michael always are Israeli guides. And so some of those men have become dear friends of yours because you've worked with them for years and years and years now, David and Ronnie and several other guys. And so those guys are the ones that are experts in Israeli history and all the geopolitics that's going on. And they will, like he said, I mean, they will tell you more than you can even process (laughs) during, I mean, every time you're in the bus, if you can ask questions and they'll tell you stuff at different sites and you will learn more than you could ever imagine about both the history and the current context of Israel. Back to my first point, I marvel about people who are afraid to travel to Israel because they'll travel all over the world (laughs) without any second thought. But Israel, oh, you know, uh, I've, I've never been ever once felt unsafe and um, again, it's it's incumbent upon uh, the Ministry of Tourism to keep their uh, uh, tourists safe. You will see a multinational uh, group of tourists from Asia, from Nigeria, from China, from Japan, from uh, Latin countries. You'll see all different people groups who come to Israel, and um, they're all safe. Uh, no Western tourists, as far as I have ever learned has been uh, hurt or accosted or in trouble uh, unless of course they're you know smuggling drugs or doing something illegal that's a different story but it's a very safe trip and and I do think it's incumbent for a believer make it make it your bucket list go to Israel you don't have to go on one of my tours but go on a tour and go to Israel and uh, the Bible that you have read in black and white will become three-dimensional holographic because you will see the Sea of Galilee. You will see the Jordan River. You will see the Judean wilderness. You will walk on the southern steps where Christ walked no less than uh, twice a year for the 33 years of his life. He was carried as an infant up and down those steps, and he would walk as a toddler and a child and an adolescent and as an adult. And uh, the last three years of his ministry, uh, you will stand on a mountain called Arbel and overlook the northern eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, and we'll call it the Jesus Triangle, where Christ spent 60 plus percent of his life on that little triangle area. And that person changed world history. And you'll walk where he walked, Capernaum, uh, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Martima, uh, Bet-Shan, 
uh, all these places in your Bible, and uh, it, it's it's a trip of a lifetime, and you should put it on your bucket list. In fact, we've got two coming up, don't we? we 2020, do. 2021 and 2022. And so, and they'll fill it very quickly. But um, take take your friends. Take we had a couple uh, uh, in May that uh, he paid. Uh, he's done very well, and he paid for both his parents and his in laws to go on a trip. So, so it's a great life change. You've been twice now, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a great life changing trip, and uh, you'll learn more about geopolitics than you'll remember. <laughs> That's right. And Molly also asked any books that you would recommend to read before going on the trip. I know Morningstar, they at least used to when you signed up for a trip. They mailed a couple books to you, I thought. They still do. Uh, Charlie Dyer and Greg Hadberg have co-authored a book called The Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land. And the, the, the reason I like that book so much is it encapsulates in like two pages a site. So... Um, to give a little explanation, think of going to uh, national parks in the U.S., Rocky Mountain National Park, Yellowstone National Park, whatever. Uh, so there's a parks pass in Israel, and most of these sites have turned into state parks for our language. And so you you will visit, let's say, a dozen, 18 of those during your time there. And what the Dyer Hatterberg uh, book do is they give you a little tiny map of the area. And then they give you the layers of biblical history, whether it's back to Abraham's time, Ezekiel's time, uh, first century Jesus time. And so it's it's a neat compendium in a very concise way to look at each part of those. It, it's, by the way, it's a great Bible study. He's got a Bible study in the front of the book, uh, four weeks worth. And then you can look at the sites as you, you want to know about Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus told uh, Peter, you're Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. All the all the passages are there. A little map of the area there, and so it's a it's an easy paint by numbers book. Uh, the other the other book I would give to our serious readers is by uh, Paul Johnson called "The History of the Jews." It's a tome. Uh, it's not a light read in any way, shape, or form, but it is a benchmark book uh, for those of you that are uh, that are readers and um, you like history and studying. And Paul Johnson did a yeoman's job, and it's a big volume, but The History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. And again, you'll learn probably more than you could ever remember. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next question. This was an email that I will read for us. What is your view on Calvinism? Is the evangelical church becoming more Calvinist? I mean, what a simple question for you to answer, right, Dr. E. Right. <laughs> two, two little sentences, less than eight words each. Um, okay, let, let me begin by saying uh, I, I love my Reformed friends. Love, love, love them. I have some what I'll call arch-Reformed friends who don't love me. <laughs> So let's just get that on the table. I have actually, this past year, you you know this, Hannah, I took a deep dive into the life of Luther. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading biographies and listening to lectures. There's a guy named Philip Carey out of uh, eastern uh, Philadelphia area, and he's, I don't know, 30-plus lectures on the life of Luther. Uh, Iko, H-E-I-K, Iko Oberman's book on Luther is a phenomenal read. Um, but I've done a deep dive on Luther. I don't know if I'll go to Calvin. I've just jumped to back further to Augustine right now. I'm in reading the confessions, but that's boring. But uh, for you, uh, but, but Calvinism, it's a, first of all, what John Calvin taught to be as open-handed as I can be on this, 
Calvinism does not necessarily represent accurately what John Calvin taught. Sure. Uh, Lutheranism does not necessarily yep. reflect what Luther taught. To understand John Calvin and Martin Luther, are it's not there's no shortcut. This is where uh, we need to you know pull off our thinking caps and do some homework. I mean, I've I've been doing this now for almost forty years. I'm still learning about Luther. Uh, one of the challenges is Luther's anti-Semitism. Yeah, there's no way around it. He hated the Jew. Calvin has some baggage that you just can't say lock, sock, and barrel. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Calvinist without understanding it. What's happened is the popularized viewpoints of these things have become, let's say, I won't say faddish, but they've come into more interest today. People are more interested in the so-called Reformed Church, the Reformed Movement. And even that's a loaded term. Uh, are you Dutch Reformed? Are you are you Reformed along the Calvinistic five-point tulip reformation? Are you Reformed Theological Seminary? So it, it's a broad term. It's like saying evangelical. What in the world do we mean? So let me see if I can give you some help. When it comes to how we're saved, or what we call the doctrine of soteriology, I am as Reformed as you can be. I believe in the doctrines of election and predestination, and I think most Bible-teaching churches would, would teach that. And granted, those are loaded doctrines, but this was part of what the Reformation was doing. Remember, these Reformers, John Calvin, earlier, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, these Reformers were Catholic priests. People forget this. They think they were uh, Protestant church folks. Well, they were protesting against the uh, egregious natures of indulgences and many other issues that were going on with the one church at the time, which was the Catholic Church. Whether you've got those in France, those in, in, in Swiss reformers, you have all these different branches. So it, it's very um, difficult to say, am I reformed? Am I Calvinist? Am I you know, reformed evangelical or whatever appendage you want to put on that? Because what the local church expression means by this thing may not be a simple definition of Calvinism. Now, the so-called TULIP, the five-point T-U-L-I-P acrostic, which you can look up at your leisure, uh, I do not think is a fair representation of John Calvin's teaching. It is a simple way of distilling a large part of what Calvin taught. So the five points of the TULIP, T being total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints, T-U-L-I-P. I think this is a popular expression to try to encompass a lot of what John Calvin taught. I do not believe it is precise in every way. And let's just look at two areas where I would have a little tension. Under the phrase limited atonement, the idea that uh, Christ's sacrificial death the atoning work of Christ's blood was only for the elect. I believe in unlimited atonement, meaning Christ's blood is sufficient for all who will come to salvation. Some of the passages that the so-called Calvinists would hold to, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch in Michael Easley's viewpoint that you can say this is limited by the nature of his atonement. So when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, 
That's not universalism, that all are going to come to Christ. That does mean when he's crucified, people are going to be drawn to the work of Christ. Uh, One of the passages they will appeal to is John 10. I know my sheep, they know me, they hear my name, they follow me, and that's, that's limited. I would simply say, no, the call of Christ goes out to the elect, and the elect respond. But to limit Christ's efficacy of paying for sin seems to uh, be a bridge too far from what Scripture does tell us, that his blood is sufficient for all sin. And I think it's an unnecessary qualification to put on the gospel. The idea of perseverance of the saints is a very interesting phrase. When the average person hears that, they say a saint will persevere to the end. What it really means is that Christ's work in you perseveres until the end. And this is an area where Calvinists in the pew, I would say, sometimes don't know what's being taught by Calvinism. Uh, We hear the phrase, once saved, always saved, is kind of a poor cliche, but that the elect, the believer, when he or she trusts Christ, they are eternally secure. The perseverance of the saints says they will never fall away. We have to be careful with that. Was Calvin talking about the person persevering by faith or the Holy Spirit persevering in that person. And I would call this, again, it's a bridge too far what the text tells us. Sanctification is certainly taught in the New Testament. So let me back up because I'm a bit in the in the ditch. I'm not angry at Calvinism. I'm not angry at, at those who would call their themselves reformers. I do find uh, some of my reformed friends, and I pejoratively call them my arch-reformed friends, are very unhappy with me because I won't hold to uh, some of their uh, strict views of limited atonement in particular. But I will go back to sola scriptura, sola fide, as being two of the five solas that mark the Reformation. Are we going back to scripture and are we going back to faith? So rather than being called a Calvinist or a Reformed person, I'd rather be called a Biblicist. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I would rather go back to see what the text says. Um, so to answer your question, I, I can't answer, is the evangelical church becoming more Calvinistic? I do believe there is a movement among many churches back toward a Reformed theology. Part of that is because evangelicalism has become very watered down, and many evangelical churches are not teaching the Scripture. And, uh, and I don't think that's an overstatement. Most evangelical churches are, are deluded. They're not teaching Scripture. Uh, we can see when our our college kids come back home. They don't believe what we hope they believed when they were younger. Uh, they've been uh, by the campus, by the church they attended in their college town. They've, quote, walked away from evangelicalism. And, and we could dissect this endlessly. But there's, without question, there's a shift in the Western church. We're losing people uh, to the evangelical church. Some of that's the church's fault. Some of that is what we've talked about in earlier uh, Ask Dr. E questions. Uh, We're living in an environment that worships diversity, worships self, worships uh, tolerance, and these words have been overused and outstretched their meaning, and it means we can't disagree. There's no truth. It's your truth. What's true for you, nomenclature, which is nonsense. So it's a sad division, um, and yet if Reformation brings us back to the text, I'm going to be a cheerleader. So I'm happy to embrace uh, a Reformed thinking. I'm happy to embrace a Reformed soteriology. I'm happy to learn from the Reformed fathers, but I will not worship 
at the church fathers. I will not worship at Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or Melanchthon or some of these heroes of the Reformation. Remember, they were trying to reform the Catholic Church. The word Protestant really became pejorative, those protesters. And when when the Bible's translated into German, it's an atrocity that the Bible is taken out of the control of the Catholic Church and put into the hands of the commoner. And these issues we have forgotten historically. So um, it's an interesting time. Uh, I do think you can belong to an evangelical or reformed church, and you can have some differences of opinion and be uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, where it becomes challenging is when you say what's true, and does that overtake what the Scripture says? And so this is where most of the argument seems to fall um, and I'm prattling again, but it's a complicated question. I love my Reformed friends, but uh, sometimes the arch-Reformed folks, I think, are, are pushing things a little too far. And the evangelical is very guilty of watering down the text, of becoming too popular in its approach to the Scripture. And, uh, oh, by the way, the sermon series on irrelevant things as opposed to getting people into the Word, which at the end of the day, I think is what certainly what I want to do. Absolutely. Okay, let's move to our last question for this episode from Jack. Hi, Dr. E. I'm Jack from Houston. I know it means a lot of speculation, but what was Christ's purpose in going and proclaiming to the saints in prison? I've researched Sproul and MacArthur, and my eyes glazed over. Please have patience. I appreciate your answer. Thank you so much. Hello, Jack from Houston. Great question. Thank you so much for uh, calling in. Now, first of all, let me acknowledge this is a very complicated passage. Let's just get that on the table. And so uh, your research is bearing uh, fruit and in, in the fact that, you know, it, it's tough and it's hard to find a simple answer. Let me direct you and redirect all of our listeners to uh, two sources. One is Dr. Tom Constable's Notes on the Bible. They're all free to download through Plano Bible Chapel, or you can just Google Constable's Notes, and you'll find it. And he has a great summary of the three prominent views and uh, some rationale on why each view has strengths and weaknesses. And that's Dr. Tom Constable, and you'll look up the, his section on First Peter. Let me read two passages from First Peter for the rest of us who, who haven't studied what you're studying to get a sense on what we're talking about. Did Jesus go down to hell and what did he do when he was there? So this comes primarily from 1 Peter 3 and 4. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. A couple observations here before I read the next one. This is in the spirit. Peter is being emphatic. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In the spirit, he goes to proclaim to spirits, who were imprisoned, and we're implying this is in hell, who were disobedient during the days of Noah, verse 20. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, we read, In all this, they are surprised that 
you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live in the spirit according to the will of God. So don't miss the connection again. Dead in the flesh, but they're going to live in the spirit. So first comment, whether we're believers or not, because we're made in Majo Deo, the image of God, we're eternal. If we trust Christ, we live forever with Christ. If we don't trust Christ, we live forever apart from Christ. Because you cannot annihilate, destroy, eliminate the image of God. So this text is talking about death in the flesh, alive in the spirit. Jesus goes, he descends, and preaches to uh, some group of spirits. So there are two primary views, actually three or four, but I'm going to distill it to two. He is descending into Hades between his death and resurrection, and he's offering the people who lived before the flood a second chance. So think about this. So they, they watched Noah build the ark. Everybody but the eight die. And so Jesus, before his resurrection, goes to Hades, and we'll talk about Hades in a second, and he's preaching the gospel of them to give them a second chance. There's no support in the Bible for a second chance of salvation. That's one view. The second view can be distilled into Christ descends into hell, again, after he's crucified, before he's resurrected, to proclaim victory. And this can be parsed a little deeper, but let's just say to the imprisoned fallen angels, and I would add even to those who uh, were alive during Noah's time but are dead. There are now spirits in Hades, but he's preaching to them. Uh, some of the reformers, Luther, if memory serves, said that Noah, through building the ark, was preaching the whole time he's building the ark in the sense that what he's doing by obeying God as this one way of salvation, eight souls, uh, this is the extent he goes to, and God's patient for 120 years but people don't respond. So the, what, what Peter seems to be saying is that through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he's preaching to all those, uh, we would say those who live before the time of the ark, even to those today, that he's accomplished his life, death, burial, and resurrection. I found a fascinating article that you can also look up. It's only a page, so it's super short. Uh, by John Piper called, Did Jesus Spend Saturday in Hell? <laughs> That's uh, better said than I could come up with. And if you search Desiring God, you'll find that Did Jesus Spend Saturday in Hell? And he does a real simple high view of this. And he suggests that the phrase, He descended into hell, uh, ought to be removed from the Apostles' Creed because it's, a, it's such a complicated uh, explanation of this passage. But at the highest level, I think we're safe to say, Christ's death physically He's alive spiritually. Hades might be a two-compartment paradiso. Uh, and those who, all of us who have died are in this stasis place until the ultimate resurrection. And this gets pretty deep into theological speculation. But if indeed we're, you know, we're bodily separated, uh, Paul says to die, he's to be with Christ. But until our bodies are resurrected, we're not fully ascended in the same way Jesus is. And again, there's some speculation there we can't be bulldogmatic about. But I think Christ, by nature of his death, burial, resurrection, in the spirit, 
has proclaimed to all who've lived forever that he accomplished a life over death. That's not a second chance theology. And the illustration is, look how patient he was 120 years during the time of Noah, and he's still that patient. But the hard fact is only a few, only a remnant will respond to the offer of salvation. Hmm. So, Dad, I mean, going back to Peter and who he was writing to at this moment, like, what do you think, what was the purpose of him communicating even that to them? That's great clarification. So, First Peter is written to those who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It's a book of suffering. It's a book of the, the diaspora, those who've been pushed out. And so if they're suffering and afflicted and dispersed from home and may never go back home, so to speak, this would mean a great deal to them mm-hmm. that you're, you're in a tough time and it's a, it, it seems like a long time, but look how patient God is. Mm-hmm. Look how patient he was in the days of Noah. Look how patient he is today. And then he'll continue in this chapter to talk about, uh, we share in, uh, one of the great mysteries for me personally is the fellowship of suffering. What in the world does that mean? that somehow our suffering is the fellowship of suffering with Christ. Mm. But all that to say, I think they would hear it as, you know, our life's terrible, we're suffering, we're being persecuted for the cause of Christ, and Peter is the shepherd apostles reminding them that Christ was patient, Mm. and he preached to the souls in hell, in Hades, that he overcame death. Mm. And for the rest of us, we learn, who are living, look how patient he is, the gospel is true, but only the small number will respond by faith. Wow. Well, that's the end of this Ask Dr. E episode, but keep your questions coming. Call and leave us a voicemail, email us, leave a message on Facebook. We'd love to answer any biblical or theological question you may have. And by we, I mean Dr. Michael Easley would love to answer your questions. We'll take a stab at it. Let's put it that way. We we may not answer them all, but we'll sure take a stab at it. All right. Well, thanks for listening and we'll see y'all next time. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.